Welcome to the Bounce Podcast. I am Bob Lapine. Glad you're along. I, I trust that as you're listening to these episodes of The Bounce, you're finding encouragement, help. Our mission here at the Great Commission Collective, GCC is the, the ministry that is providing this podcast for you on a regular basis. I, I trust that you are being strengthened and challenged and equipped in pastoral ministry or as a church planter. Our mission at the Great Commission Collective is to plant churches and to strengthen leaders. And so I hope this podcast is having that kind of impact in your life. I am a, a local church pastor. I pastor Redeemer Community Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. I serve on the board of directors for the Great Commission Collective, and it has been uh, so helpful and so important for us as a local church to be partnered together with the Great Commission Collective. Uh, you can find out more about GCC going to our website, which is gccollective.org. And I just want to highlight, by the way, there's a new book out by our president, Dave Harvey. It's a book called Stronger Together, and it's all about the importance of us as local churches being in alliance with partnership at some level with other churches around the country and around the globe in advancing the work of the gospel. So I hope you'll get a copy of Dave's new book, Stronger Together. There's a link to the book in the show notes. You can find out more about that book. And again, I think you'll find it very helpful and find out more about GCC at gccollective.org. We're going to talk on today's podcast about how you feel and about how people in your church feel. We're going to talk about emotions. Uh, we're going to be talking with the president of the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, Alistair Groves, who has written, co-written a book called Untangling Emotions. There's a link to CCEF, the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, in our website as well, if you're unfamiliar with them. But that's actually where the conversation with Alistair is going to start today, talking about him and about CCEF. Okay, I have to start off with two things. First of all, before I officially introduce you, I want to make sure I am correctly pronouncing what everybody just says, Alistair, like it's Alistair, but is it Alastair? And and how did you get this name? Because you're, a, you're a, an American, right? This is true. This is true. If you want to be really technical about it, it would be Alastair, Alastair. Yes. Um, but Alistair, 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 <laughs> it all sounds like me. I draw the line at Alabaster. I will correct you if you call me Alabaster, and I've had that happen. So You serve as president of the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation. Is it education or educational? Which is it? Very good. Educational. No one knows this, but yes, it's educational. The Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, and I'm assuming most of the folks who are listening to us know about CCEF or know the names David Pollison and Ed Welch, who are kind of the best known names uh, among the, the ministry. I, I just want to say on the front end, if folks don't know about CCEF, I hope they will find out about it because as I shared with you recently, I have leaned in heavily to what CCEF does in the area of counseling, primarily because I think you have done an outstanding job of bringing grace and truth into the same environment and making sure you are caring for the, the soul and the, the spirit of who, somebody who may be a wounded person and yet at the same time bringing truth to bear on the, the woundedness or the challenges. I, I think sometimes in biblical counseling, there can be the idea that there's a sin issue here. We need to get the, the Bible applied and fix these people and, and get them out the door and we want to be careful that we're not bruising the broken reed or quenching the smoldering wick, right? Amen. Yeah, well said. Thank you, Bob. I mean, that's such a such an encouragement, uh, especially coming from you. Just 
you've had a lot of interactions with a lot of different ministries and a lot of different places where the gospel applied deeply and carefully has really mattered. So for you to say that you've you found a lot of help at, at CCF is a sweet thing to hear. Yeah. If people are interested, if you're not familiar, you can just go to ccef.org, charliecharlieechofoxtrot.org. And we've got podcasts and blogs and audio recordings and talks and articles and you name it. Wonderful stuff. And there's a link in our show notes for those who would want to find out more about CCEF. And I hope churches will recognize, pastors will recognize this as a resource for you as a pastor, for people in your church as they're dealing with all kinds of spiritual, emotional challenges in their life. And and we're going to spend our time talking about this book that you and Winston Smith have written. I have it right here in front of me, Untangling Emotions. This is a book that I am feeling ambivalent about reading. Honestly, that's the emotion <laughs> that I'm feeling as it relates to this it. book. The, the reason I'm feeling ambivalent about it, I'm pretty functional with my emotions as they are right now. And I don't want to do anything to disrupt that. But by the same token, I, I'm challenged by what you shared with us recently when you were at the Great Commission Collective Pastors and Wives Retreat. I was challenged by just thinking that, first of all, my emotions may be less than God's emotions, and I ought to be something ought to go challenged, uh, yep. yeah, that challenged in that area. And then I, I thought about who are the the people, if you think about like the paragons of the Old Testament and the New Testament, who would those people be? And I thought immediately, well, well King David would be a paragon. And then I thought, but King David seemed to me like he was bipolar. <laughs> I mean, I, you know what I'm saying? Sure. I read the Psalms and I go, David, you need help. You need some clinical work done here. You need therapy. Amen. <laughs> and then and then I jumped to the New Testament and it's Peter sure. who, is, who is the closest to Jesus. And here's somebody who is impulsive and erratic and one moment he is grabbing a sword to engage uh, someone in battle, and an hour later he's denying he even knows Jesus. And I'm thinking, I don't want to be like either of those two guys. And if your book's going to make me more like them, then I'm not sure I want to read your book. <laughs> well, uh, bail out now, with, then. With, with, with that ringing endorsement, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> tell me why you and Winston Smith felt like you needed to write this book and specifically as you think about pastors and how pastors process our own emotions. I mean, as, as pastors, I feel a responsibility to model for my people healthy, godly emotions. I'm not sure I'm doing that as well as I should. Speak on that for a second, if you can. Let me try to briefly speak sort of to the personal on-ramp and then a bit more to the, the more strategic on-ramp to why we wrote the book, uh, and then feel free to follow up on, on either if you like. Personally, um, I've actually always been a fairly emotionally stable uh, person. Uh, plenty of places where I sort of knew how to navigate my way around emotional uh, landmines I saw coming at me, and and so I um, but I couldn't get around that with the death of my father when I was in my my early to mid twenties. And I remember realizing that that verse in First Thessalonians four that says we do not grieve like those who have no hope. I, no one had ever taught me this explicitly, but I'd always thought it meant we don't grieve. Right to to grieve is to go against God's sovereign plan. You know, if God thinks it's all for good, then then how could we be grieving? And I remember realizing what it what it says: we don't grieve like a hopeless person. We actually grieve with hope. And, and then you see, you know, godly men mourning Stephen, who if he if he ever wanted to be happy for someone to be with the Lord, it would be a guy who's just been stoned and whose body was being crushed and who was being humiliated and publicly, you know, lambasted like. 
it's good for him to be with Jesus rather than where he was. And here's the Lord opening heaven to welcome him. And I mean, this is as good as it gets from transitioning out of suffering into heaven. And godly men mourned him deeply. For me, that was the that was the sort of the rocket moment out of the atmosphere. Oh my goodness. The way I've been thinking about emotions has not been on square. So I became a counselor uh, through the process of seminary uh, in my mid-20s, uh, began to try to help people with their emotions, found a lot of people talking about their anger, realized that the way people talked about anger wasn't making sense to me either, and that there was sort of the sense of, well, you just have to kind of get your anger out, you know, vent it, blow off some steam, pour it out. There's sort of this get it off your chest as if it was something in you that if you just got rid of it, you know, you'd feel better. And you do feel better when you do such things. But three days later, it's stronger. And I realized it's like working out at the gym. Uh, you know, you feel spent when you get out of the gym. Two days later, your muscles are actually bigger. You've actually exercised your anger when you vent. And so that just, it really set me on a path of saying, okay, my own emotions and others' emotions, uh, both personally and strategically, we we need help thinking about how scripture captures emotions. So I just wanted people, uh, any ministry situation you're ever part of, and by ministry, I mean that as broadly as you can get. That's not just pastors or professional, you know, parachurch types. That's ministry, just a way of loving people with the Lord and his priorities at, at the center of that. You're going to be hitting emotions, pushing and pulling and, and prodding and prying. And, and we've got to have a, a way to think about what actually we do with emotions from a biblical side. So that, that was that was my on-ramp to, to why write a book. And you shared with us at the Pastor and Wives Retreat something that was, I think, helpful for all of us. You said most of us categorize emotions as an A-list and a B-list. Just to set that up for those who are listening. So typically, uh, amongst Christians, I, I find there is a, there's a list of good emotions. These are the right emotions to have. These are righteous and godly and God-honoring, and they are peace, contentment, joy, uh, and then there's a bad list, a, a B list of emotions you should not have. You should be getting out of these, repenting of these, and there are things like anger, fear, um, sadness, discouragement, uh, shame, what have you. The study for this book just totally blew that whole mindset out of the water. You watch Jesus grieve the tomb of Lazarus. Well, why Why is he crying? He's, he could just fix things. Well, it's because he loves Lazarus. He loves Mary. He loves Martha. He loves his father's kingdom and the overturning of sin and its consequences. Jesus is angry when he sees sin. Uh, Jesus feels something that I would probably call dread in the Garden of Gethsemane. You you watch throughout Scripture and godly men, David, a man after God's own heart, is constantly expressing uh, frustrations. He's expressing discouragement that's that's extreme beyond what many of us will ever know. Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 1, uh, as Dave Harvey was talking about on the retreat, uh, about the extreme overwhelmingness of certain situations. Paul talks about uh, having anxiety because he loves the churches and worries about what's going to happen to them in 2 Corinthians 11. So you have all these places where actually negative emotions that we thought were on the B list, they, they turn out to be godly, right, appropriate responses. If you love Jesus, if you love his church, if you love his kingdom, then you will actually mourn with those who mourn and you will feel a weight on your soul of a burden of concern. Wow, this is going to go badly if they get persecuted or if they are beset by false teachers or if there's temptations and divisions and rivalries amongst the congregation. It's right to bear a weight on your heart of anxiety for them. Now, can we go all kinds of bad places with that? Sure. Does anger pretty quickly go sour and turn into bitterness or rage or vengeance? Does discouragement easily become uh, sort of a, a despairing lack of of faith that we actually cycle inward rather than running to the Lord? Sure, of course. Can contentment, though, get out of hand too? Absolutely. You can become easily content with a state of affairs that is not bringing contentment and peace to God's heart. You can be joyful about 
someone else's sorrow and setbacks because you selfishly want to gain from them. So there's things on the, what we would think of the A-list that actually can be deeply wicked and sinful emotions to have. And there's things on the B-list that are the right, godly, healthy emotions to have. The question is, is your heart mirroring God's heart? If so, you'll rejoice when he rejoices, you'll mourn when he mourns. If you find yourself mourning when he rejoices or rejoicing when he mourns, both are problematic. You mentioned Second uh, Corinthians eleven twenty eight, which I I don't know that I'd ever noticed Paul saying, I have this anxiety daily for the churches. This is the same man who said, be anxious for nothing. He's not confessing sin when he says, I have anxiety for all of these churches. There's a right kind of anxiety to have. That's what Paul's telling us. And that's not the only place he does it. He actually, you know, you're referencing Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing. In Philippians 2, at the end of the, now this is the lesser unknown of Philippians 2, right? The great stuff is up at the beginning and the middle. At the end, there's this bit about Epaphroditus who gets sick and he's about to die. And and Paul, if you read the last six or seven verses, it's full of emotion language. I'm sending Epaphroditus to you so that your joy may be uh, complete when you get him back, and uh, God will have spared me sorrow upon sorrow, and he'll have actually relieved. I was feeling great anxiety. Again, he's feeling anxiety because his friend was sick, not because he doesn't believe in the resurrection, but because this fellowship sent a brother to him, and if he dies with them, he knows the impact that will have back home for, on the church. He loves the church. He loves Epaphroditus. Therefore, he feels a burden of anxiety that if this man dies while caring for him, there will be this grief that will then be visited upon them. And they're uncertain and they're waiting for word and it takes weeks to get any word, you know, in the ancient world to get around. So here he is two chapters before saying being anxious for nothing. He's saying, and I had this anxiety, this weight of anxiety, and I had sorrow upon sorrow that God spared me when he didn't take Epaphroditus away, which means whatever Paul is saying and be anxious for nothing, it's clearly not saying don't love anyone, don't care about anyone, shut your heart to the world, become a stoic, lock it up in the little casket C.S. Lewis talks about. Uh, instead, what he must mean there is do not dwell endlessly in your, in your anxieties. Do not give in to anxiety and let that be the story. Instead, as First Peter 5, 7 takes it, take your anxieties and cast them into the Lord's lap. Let your anxieties be this well-worn pathway between you and Heavenly Father who is actually inviting you in every emotion to come to his to come to his lap to come to his throne room. Is it right for me to think that because I have remaining sin, indwelling sin, whatever emotion I'm feeling will never be pure or godly, whether it's an A list or a B list. If I'm having joy, it's always going to be tainted with some sense of I'm joyful because I'm benefiting from this rather than because God is glorified in this. Or I'm thinking of this in relation to anger. People I'm talking to who will say, well, God experiences anger, so there is such a thing as righteous anger. And I go, not in your body, there's not. You, you, may, have, <laughs> you, you may have anger that has a righteous component to it, but because you are a person who is stuck with remaining sin, your anger will always have at least some aspect of self uh, protection, self. Is that a right way to think about these things? Bob, that is such a good question. I, I have actually been really grappling with that a lot over the years since writing the book. I mean, through writing the book, it really raised that question. I'll tell you how I'm thinking about it right now, but I reserve the right to have the Lord continue to to grow me from here and, and feel free to push back on this. I guess the way I'd say it is, as I understand a theology of a human being, it is true that indwelling sin is in my heart on some level, and therefore who I am is something I bring to every situation in its entirety. Therefore, every moment of my life is on, on some level 
tainted by sin. So can you have truly perfectly godly anger? No. Can you have truly perfectly godly joy? No. Can you have perfectly truly godly ecstatic worship on a Sunday morning when you're lifting your hands and just weeping with joy for what Christ has done? I, I, I guess technically I'm going to have to say no. You, even there, some level of the sin is tainted. Now, in a conversation, in ministry, in life actually lived as a human being, you have to make choices. Where am I going to put the emphasis? And I'm going to say that I think there's lots of times where I would emphasize the, the good component of an emotion. So there you are weeping tears of gratitude for forgiveness. Perhaps somewhere deep in the background is a sense of relief that you got away with something and you're not going to suffer the consequences of it. That's not just gratitude, but that's also a certain kind of selfish, whatever is that, you know, sure that's there. And so therefore in anger, would I ever speak to someone about righteous anger? I actually would. There are times when I would say, yeah, you know what? This is a right thing to be angry about. Now, if you look at Jesus, you always see his righteous anger on behalf of others rather than on behalf of himself. And I'd say certainly the most dangerous kind of anger is a is an anger on behalf of oneself. But I think there's an appropriate way, especially in cases where you've just been sinned against horribly. Well, there's a right way to encourage someone to say, you know, the Lord is angry on your behalf and there there is an anger against this sin. Oh my goodness, let's be careful. <laughs> uh, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And so that demands that we guard against even our righteous anger sweeping us into sin. But I, I do think there's a place for, on a functional level, speaking of godly discouragement, godly fear, godly anger, uh, godly shame, godly guilt, and um, recognizing any of those things bring with them uh, a significant danger of being sucked into the bitterness or the whatever that that would wait around the corner that, that the devil would love to convert them into. And we should acknowledge that if if you observe or let's say you have a, a, a wife in your congregation who you have just found out that her husband has been physically abusive with her. If there is not some kind of righteous indignation, anger in you as a pastor over that that sinful, yeah, a bigger problem than whatever indwelling sin may accompany your righteous anger, right? And whatever may accompany her uh, anger or or confusion or lashing, right? You know, she's she's been in this secret world of horror and no one that she felt she could talk to often a sense that no one would believe me if I did. And you find out that he has imprisoned her in this place of physical violence, but also just of having to to live with a sense of what is my day going to, to be like? And this man who God gave me to provide and care is instead treating me as a sheep to be slain and and for his pleasure, you know, and, and so for her to speak of that, for you not to have that reaction. Um, and not to see your primary goal as how can I protect and shelter this woman? Is she going to sin in the context of that? Is she going to do things that are not going to be the best of responses? Yeah, undoubtedly. Is that important to the Lord? Of course it is. You have to take priorities in ministry. What What is the most significant thing to address? Um, and so in her, <laughs> I'm addressing the, the Lord protects his sheep. In the husband, I'm addressing, brother, you need to repent. There needs to be a, an opening of your eyes. In yourself, there's a sense of it's actually right and good for me to feel strongly about the wrongness of this and to be careful that I don't, in doing that, return evil for evil, but that I let that anger actually drive me towards a protective, merciful, uh, restorative, redemptive agenda in the situation rather than running away in cowardice or throwing God's sovereignty up at it in a sort of way that doesn't then obligate me to get involved or or whatever you have. 
I want to move from talking about how we shepherd the emotions of the the people in our congregation to our own emotions as pastors and as church planters. And in in preparation for this, I was thinking, is there a, a besetting emotion for pastors? Is there something that is the dominant thing that pastors would be wrestling with? And I thought, well, if the statistics I'm hearing on burnout are what they are, then I would guess discouragement in ministry may be the thing ahead of everything else. Maybe you'd have something else that pops up higher than that on the list. But it sure seems like pastors I'm talking to find themselves pouring out pretty regularly and then having somebody come and say, well, why didn't you do this? Or you did that wrong? Or And, and they just want to go home and say, forget this whole thing. Yep. What do we do with that? <laughs> well, just that. Forget, it. forget it. Let somebody else be the pastor, right? I mean, shoot, you've done it for six months. It's someone else's turn. Oh, man. Yeah, I hear that. I hear that so strong. And, and I, I mean, statistics and anecdotal suggest you are you are dead on. If, there, if there's another emotion that's that's higher on the charts, uh, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I would think that would be huge in this in this season. And I, I'm, that's been huge for 2000 years in different contexts. But yeah, what, what do we do with it? I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is every emotion is designed to draw us into deeper connection with our father. So if, if your first instinct is, what do I do to either fix my emotion or endure my emotion or solve my emotion or, or act on my emotion or whatever, in one sense, I actually want to slow you down and say, um, as inefficient, as uncomfortable as it may be, the first thing you must do with an emotion is speak it to the Lord. Uh, Psalm 62, 8, pour out your heart at all times. You know, trust in him at all times, pour out your heart to him. That, that, idea that part of having faith in God is speaking what's on your heart to him. He knows he's sovereign, he's omniscient. He doesn't need you to tell him in that sense, but there's a but he does need you to in the sense of that is the only way to have relationship is to speak, is to engage. And and so I think one of the reasons that our that our our current our contemporary church has been so bad at lament, has so neglected the the theology of lament. And one of the reasons why I'm thankful that I think so many books are springing up that actually are starting to highlight lament over the past five-ish years um, is, is, is that we, ha- we have to. Our, our, our human experience as crafted into us by God demands that we would speak about our emotions to him. So if you are a pastor and you are discouraged, there are a lot of reasons for that and they pile on top of each other. And, and your first... And in some ways, your most uncomfortable and unsettling duty is actually just to begin to speak to the Lord about it, to to name the things that are discouraging, to try to put words on the depth of discouragement, to put words on, um, I don't even know how to get out of this. I don't know what to do with it or Lord help. But but even that, even the turn to Lord, would you help? Lord, would you change? Lord, would you do this in me? Would you do this in my congregation? Would you help us as an elder board to get on the same page? That's that's really even step two. That that request, the cry for help. In some ways, the first part is simply the cry: "I am hurting. I am discouraged. This is not what I thought it was going to look like. Um, this is not what it should look like. This is ridiculous." <laughs> to, so to to just to pour out your heart, I think, would be the very first, most practical thing I would tell a pastor. And it's not something I find pastors to be uh, good at. Pastors, when they pray, tend to pray for people and for things but not to pour out their heart and the emotion and the discouragement 
Um, so that's that's undoubtedly for many of us going to be the biggest struggle is actually to take that to the Lord. We'll, we'll case study this. An email comes in to 11 o'clock on a Sunday night and somebody says, oh, this is a hard email for us to write. But, you know, after a lot of prayer and this, we've decided we're going to go to another church We're we're leaving uh, a lot of reasons for that. And, and um, we're not interested in talking about it. Thanks. We just wanted to let you know we're out. Bringing your, your sense of rejoicing. Finally, they're leaving. I'm free. Oh, sorry. Is that not where you were going? I, I, I can confess they're a bit, <laughs> but, but you get one of those. And so you pour out to the Lord here as you pour out to the Lord and go, Lord, okay, we had some traction going, felt like things. And now all of that, this is, we're probably going to take a financial hit here. We're People are going to wonder why people, other people are going to stop and go, am I missing something that's wrong with the church? This is going to be disruptive in the fellowship and the family. And I don't have time for this. You can pour out all kinds of things. When, when I do that as a pastor, what I hear starting to happen back in my head is, now you know what the truth is, just do what David does and speak the truth to, to your emotions. Why so downcast, oh my soul, put your hope in God. So like there's, there can be a five minute pouring out and you can have your little pity party and then let's get back to living on truth and, and being people of faith. Am I short circuiting something if I do that? It probably depends. I think there's a, there, here's one of those places where the Lord is just He's so personal with us, and he's going to work with us each in different ways. So I, I guess if I could give – so first off, I, I love that verse. Why are you so downcast, on oh my soul? Why so disturbed with him? I mean, you know, turn yet again to God. Hope in God. There's this wrestling you here. It's not, it's not a quick, easy, simple thing. And in fact, you get that phrase repeated three times in two psalms. You know, Psalm 42, 43, you get that exact phrase three times. You get the sense this wasn't just one and done. Five minutes and off I go, and now I'm, I'm cruising back down the highway. You get the sense of this is a back and forth. You look at Psalm 119, and uh, for those of, of, of you as listeners who have indeed heard of David Pallison, whom Bob mentioned at the beginning, uh, he wrote an article on Psalm 119 in the Journal of Biblical Counseling. It's also published as a chapter in a, a book he wrote called Speaking Truth and Love, where he draws out the way that Psalm 119, it has a lot to say about Scripture, but it has four times as many words of I and you as it does about the word, the testimonies, the statutes. And it's a dialogue. And in fact, it's enormously full of suffering language. It's this, I am afflicted. Lord, help me. Uh, these people are against me. I am suffering. I am confused. Though I have enemies, I will trust. And it's this incredible look at the psalm that I had never taken before that, that pushes you to realize there is going to be this lengthy back and forth for the rest of your life with the Lord as you encounter hardships and trials and sufferings and through many dangerous toils and snares you have already come and there's more to go between here and home. On any given day, especially as somebody who has developed the habit and the pattern and the, even maybe the discipline of lament, I think there can be a, a three-minute turnaround. There can be a, Lord, here it is again. Oh my God, why <laughs> yet again am I in this place? I just, I look at myself and I'm just, what is wrong with me? Or the, these people, I've, I've given them everything I knew how to give, Lord. And I really thought they were going to turn. And here they are. Like, what, what happened in my sermon this morning that led them here 11 hours later? Ah, uh, my heart just aches, Lord, at this yet again. You know, right? And then to move from that very quickly to, you know what? You've got me. You had me last week. You'll have me next week. You are the one in whom I put my trust Whew, okay, <laughs> walk me through this. 
Why yeah. me again? That that's a righteous prayer. There's nothing wrong with with that being the place that you land in 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 90 seconds. Um, so long as that doesn't write out of the picture that you'd be doing it again. Now, if that's not been your habit and your discipline, if you're not conversant with the language of Psalm 119 or 42 and 43, if you don't have a a natural back and forth with the Lord that's a significant part of your daily chat, um, then I would anticipate that you'd probably want to slow down, that five minutes is too fast, that there's going to actually be a a painful um, pushing yourself to be like, I, I just have to sit with him and talk. I need to treat him like he really was my my dad, with whom I would just say, hmm, this isn't good. This isn't right. I don't like this. And, I, and I'm not yet figuring out what to do, simply being honest about Here's what's on my heart. Here's what I care about. Here's where it doesn't look right. And the benefit of sitting in that pain rather than trying to correct it and move past it too quickly is what? The heart of it is, it is the very point of life. We were made to know God, enjoy him forever, right? We were made to have relationship. We are worshipers at the very fundamental core of who we are. Worship is looking at your Redeemer, looking at your Lord, looking at his holiness and goodness, and seeing that it is glorious and responding with glory. You cannot respond to redemption with worship until you appreciate that you are actually being pulled out of something bad. So if your stoic response to hardship is simply to brush it off and not acknowledge it and ignore it and move past because you're that tough and you're that strong and you're called to be a good shepherd, you are actually shortchanging the worship of God in his redemption. So fundamentally, uh, a relationship requires a dialogue. It requires a back and forth and an engagement. And that is what God invites us into. He could make you perfect right now and snap his fingers. He could take you home right now, snap his fingers. He's, he's left you here for a purpose. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He could have just snapped his fingers and raised him. That patient, mourn with those who mourn, hate what God hates, love what he loves, be zealous, and let that lead you to anxiety for the church. That whole way of being and living is the very point of life that we would learn to rely on the Redeemer and see his redemption as glorious. That means seeing sin as bad and suffering as horrific and the damage done to humanity and to this world as real and meaningful. So that would be the core of it. I would add one more tiny little piece and just say the, um, the learning to sit is almost always, especially for a pastor, more than anyone else for a pastor, sitting in the pain and talking about it to God, not not sitting in it just sort of like, oh, just feel your pain, but like actually acknowledging that there's pain there and speaking about it with your father, that is going to be a faith exercise because it's the least efficient feeling thing ever. You're not yet asking for help. You're not doing anything about it. You're not creating a strategy about it. You're not whipping your butt into shape to get past it and and go send the next email and write the next sermon. There is no tangible thing you can check off your list. There is no advanced anything on on the set of duties you have ahead of you. It it feels almost as bad to sit there and do, quote unquote, nothing as it does to sit and feel the pain and talk about it to the Lord. And that inefficiency, like the Sabbath, like gleaning, like all the laws of the Old Testament that point you to, no, you're going to have to trust in me. It's not about you being all full of power. So fundamentally, relationship, side benefit 
it actually is going to be profound exercise in, in trust. You characterize a guy in the introduction of your book, a guy named Aaron. He has it pretty easy. He knows his emotions. They don't trouble him often. When they do, he rarely stays blue or irritated for long. He's not hiding from his deeper feelings. He just doesn't get upset all that often when he does. Things turn out all right. The, the sun will come up tomorrow. And I thought to myself as I read that, first of all, I, I related to that. And then I thought I might have a tendency to think, you know, if it had been me in the garden, I wouldn't have been in as much anguish as Jesus was uh, because I, I'm i just a little more in control of my own emotions than Jesus. And all of a sudden saying that, I'm going, <laughs> maybe the problem's not Jesus here, right? Maybe the problem Could is be. that he's... <laughs> So, so I, I, I think what I'm gleaning from listening to you and from the book is just a recognition that if we want to be fully the people God made us to be, we're going to have to come to grips with the fact that emotions are a part of who he is, who he made us to be, and that rather than uh, being controlled by them or running away from them, we need to have a thoughtful engagement with them and see what we can learn and how we can grow from them. Amen and amen. Couldn't say it any better than that. Well, then let me ask you about pastoring people who are less well put together than we are. People whose emotions tend to dominate every part of their life. They tend to be tossed to and fro by whatever the prevailing emotion of the moment is. And we're involved in spiritual counsel. And honestly, I, I can quickly default to Bob Newhart and that classic <laughs> online skit. I hope every pastor has seen the, the yes. skit where the woman comes in and says, here's my problem. And he says, I can solve it in five minutes and it's stop it or I'll bury you alive in a box. Right. That right. if you haven't seen it, we've got links it's, in the show it's, notes. It's you really more charming than it just sounded like. <laughs> it is. You, because there is this tendency to want to um, to be dealing with the people who really should have gotten this figured out about three months ago. And yet it just seems like it's the ongoing pattern of their life, and they wear you out as a pastor and as a counselor, as a discipler. How do we develop the stamina and the grace and the compassion to deal with people who seem stuck in emotional dysfunction? Well, that's a quick question. Let me just give you the one simple answer. Um, <laughs> Refer them out to, to another right. counselor. Right. Yes, yeah, send, send everyone to just us at CCF. We'll fix them. We'll send them back. 80 different thoughts. I'll, I'll try to just keep it to just a few, but I suppose on a theological level, the, the very most fundamental answer to that is um, live out of the grace you've received. Live out of the grace you've received. You are not a prize in the Lord's possession compared to this person. You are a mess yourself. Um, and whether it's emotions, whether it's actions, whether it's thoughts, whether it's an omission of love uh, for people around you, whether it's whatever, laziness, selfishness, pride, we... We are all people who have been shown a patience by the living God beyond what we can even begin to fathom. So if you find yourself struggling ever in any context, not just emotions, to sympathize with the person across from you, there's a level at which we have to run back and say, okay, Lord, I'm losing hold, losing hold of your patience with me and the depth of grace. Will you restore to me the joy of my salvation, uh, which includes an appreciation for how, how deep it goes. I'm always struck by Jesus on the hill looking down at Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to take you under my wing. If only you'd known the things that made for your peace. He's saying that. You can hear the tears in his eyes. You can hear the compassion in his chest. He's saying that right after delivering his longest sermon of rebuke and woe. It's woe to you, woe to you, seven times woe, woe, woe. It's, you know, 40 verses or 35 verses or whatever of the scathing, scathing condemnation ending with, 
if only you knew what we're good. So, so if Jesus can look at people who are completely getting it wrong, willfully making their own bed and about to lie in it, and his response to that is a grief and a compassion that they don't know what's actually good for them as they're about to crucify him, right? Surely, surely we can grow in our ability to to bear with and weather with. So, so the first thing is, yeah, check your own heart by running to the Lord to be reminded of his patience and grace with you. The second thing would be recognize that, you're, yeah, their emotions are always saying something true about, about what's going on around them. It may be warped, maybe distorted, maybe wildly out of proportion, but, but it's, it's constantly giving them and you helpful indicators of what they really care about and what they value. And so the more you can not be swept away with frustration by this person is so emotional and it's exhausting and, and, and all the good help I'm giving them, they can't seem to hang on to and they go do the wrong thing and, and they don't seem to be able to hang on to the center of what would actually really help them recognizing they are, they're just constantly and very vulnerably, helplessly voicing to you, displaying to you, here's some things that are important to me. So the more you can try to listen for what, what does this person's emotion tell me about what's really important to them? And how can I, how can I speak words of orientation, comfort, challenge, um, reorientation? Just how, how can I help them think as I'm hearing where their values are circling? Because a lot of times those values are circling really good things. They really want to be involved at church. They really want to have a closer friendship with this other woman. They really want to have, picturing a woman when I say that, I really want to have impact at work. I really want to have kids who are doing well. Um, I really want to walk with the Lord in a close way. And though, if you're having strong emotions around those sorts of things, I, I fear I'm losing my salvation and it's just racking me with intense anxiety and horror. And Well, that's a great thing to get really worked up about. Now, usually the fact that you're worked up about it actually suggests, well, you care a lot about that. That's a really good sign about where your heart is. And I've had that conversation many times. But just, yeah, the more you can hear the values and speak to the value, speak to the heart, speak to the, the thing that is really mattering, let that be the thing that absorbs your pastoral interest and and gentle engagement, and do not yeah do not snuff out a bruised a bruised reed, and wick. Um, that's probably going to be your best your best way to sort of orient in the midst of whew, you just got it coming at you all over the place. As you're saying that, I'm thinking the very first thing that Paul points us to as a descriptor for what love is in First Corinthians thirteen is that love is long suffering. Love is patient. God is infinitely patient with us. So if we love our people, it's going to be, uh, there, there's going to be a patience required. And I, I like long suffering because that's what it feels like a lot. I'm suffering for a long time. Exactly. exactly. And that's what love looks like, right? Exactly. Exactly. I, here, here's what I'm thinking. I'm, as I'm having this conversation with you, thinking about the book, I'm, I'm thinking I probably need to get a group together and all of us go through it together and have the dialogue. It will have a bigger impact on me if I do that rather than just me and my highlighter going through it. Um, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah. 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 So um, I, I hope in another 10 years, we can have another conversation because that's about as frequently as I think I can handle these conversations <laughs> with you and the disruption you're going to be in my life for all of this. No, I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for the book. I think it's an important book for us all because uh, one of the things that was said at the retreat, you heard Dave Harvey say it the first night when he said that 
Um, the the way that Christians view emotion view the Bible is the way that the culture is now viewing emotions. Emotions are authoritative. Emotions are what lead us. We we trust implicitly in our emotions. They are true and right always. Your book is a corrective not only to that cultural view, but it's also a corrective to the stoicism that can be the the uh, pendulum swing on the other side of that and help us understand if we want to be uh, the people of God and be more like Jesus, we're going to have to have a healthier understanding uh, and embracing of the emotions that God made us with. My pleasure. If I can add one last just quick thing, it would be we have spent a lot of our time focused on the sort of stoicism problem in the church. You're rightly highlighting we live in a culture that goes the other way, right? They they worship at the altar of emotions. And um, I'm just so struck that our God is a God of truth. And tr- it is right for truth to orient our emotions. Our God is also a God, and I'm going to put this provocatively, who does whatever he feels like. God always follows his emotions. He always listens to everything he wants, and he does it. And for him... There is no discrepancy there. Truth and wisdom never get in tension with doing what he is passionate about and feeling like. And so for for us to, as human beings, recognize we're tempted to have bad actions, we're tempted to have bad thoughts, we're tempted to have bad emotions, and all three are actually meant to draw us toward the Lord and towards obedient, righteous worship. Uh, And any of the three can actually act as a helpful corrective of the other two. So I'm all for truth centering us, leading us forward. And you know what? There's also times when your conscience is uneasy and your gut is not in a great place and you're rationalizing something in your brain. It's actually your emotions that are telling you something truer than what your mind is lying to you about. And you can act in ways that get you into bad habits and you can act in ways that get you into good habits when your emotions and your thoughts are lagging behind. So there's this wonderful way where God is working in all kinds of ways in our lives and drawing us towards the God who is the God of overflowing emotion all the time. Well, I hope you have found this conversation with Alistair Groves, the president of the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. I hope you found it helpful, encouraging, challenging, as I have. Uh, again, information about the book Untangling Emotions in the show notes, along with a link to the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. Uh, go to the show notes or uh, check them out. I, I, re- I really do think you'll find them a very helpful resource for you in pastoral ministry in doing soul care. And I think you'll find them a helpful referral site for people in your church who are dealing with challenging emotional moments in their lives. Again, uh, the information about the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation is in our show notes. Let me also encourage you to like and to subscribe to this podcast, The Bounce Podcast. Every time you like it or you subscribe, you are helping other people find out about this podcast. And we'd like to think that this is a podcast that can benefit pastors and planters, whether they're a part of the Great Commission Collective family or not. So again, uh, like, subscribe, leave comments, let us know how we can improve the podcast. If there's a topic you'd like to see us discuss or a guest you'd like to see us have on, leave that information for us as well. We review your comments and look forward to hearing from you. Now, next time on The Bounce, we're going to talk about your worship service. And we're going to talk about how you put together a worship service specifically focused on the the musical element of that, but also the other elements of liturgy in your worship, how you do that in such a way to engage your people and to 
honor God in the process. Matt Merker is going to join us. He's written a book on corporate worship. He works with the Getty Music uh, folks, and he is the author of the hymn that many of us sing, He Will Hold Me Fast. Matt joins us next time. I hope you'll be here as well for the next episode of The Bounce.